Today, we are in our fourth week of our series called Seven, and we've been talking through the first couple chapters of Revelation, and this week will be in number four, uh, which is the message, the letter that's written to the church in Thyatira. I want to encourage you, if you are here today and you've been with us, uh, or even if today's your first time with us, I want to encourage you that during the week, you take a moment to read through the first three chapters of Revelation. They're the least weird Somebody say amen. Okay. They're the least weird. Doesn't have like beasts with seven heads and horns coming out and wings with eyes on them and all that stuff. These are just messages that Jesus actually delivers to John and says, John, write these messages down and send them to these churches. Let me show you the map of where we've traveled from. It's also known as the Roman the Roman road, uh, which during this time they would have started in Ephesus. It was like a mail route and they would have gone up to the left to Smyrna, Pergamum, and now down to Thyatira, which is where we're at today. In the bottom part of this light gray area, you see those little dots. Those are little islands. On one of those islands, it's called Patmos. That's where John was exiled. This is the disciple John who was exiled there and he was exiled for preaching the gospel. While he's there, Jesus comes and reveals himself to him. Now, you have to understand, Jesus has died. He has resurrected. He has not been on the earth for a period of time, years at this point. Yet he shows back up and reveals himself to John and says, I've got something important. Write this down. So he starts with letters to the churches, and today we're looking at that fourth church called Thyatira. Everybody say Thyatira. Thyatira. Never going to say it again, probably, but Thyatira was one of these cities. And I'm going to read the whole passage that we're in today, and then I want to tell you some things about the city before we look at how we apply this message to ourselves. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 to 29, It says this, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Verse 19 says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. That means they're getting better. That's pretty awesome. Verse 20 says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. Verse 21 says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Verse 22 says, Behold, I will throw her into or onto a sickbed. Uh, the modern version of that would be, I'm going to put her in the hospital or a deathbed. And it says, And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, 
To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Verse 27, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Heavenly Father, I pray a blessing on your word. It already exists, but I pray today you would bless our hearing of it. Lord, I pray that you would open up the ears of those who have maybe turned a deaf ear to your spirit. And I pray that your spirit would overwhelm us today. Help us not to simply learn history or knowledge from your word. But Lord, I pray as I've prayed this week and pray regularly that your spirit would truly speak to every individual that hears this message today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So there are a few things about Thyatira that I want to tell you. Uh, it was a trade city. It was a small, blue-collar town. Um, everybody pretty much was a hard worker. It would kind of be a town that maybe in today's day and age, we would say that's kind of like a pit stop town. There's hotels off the highway. You just kind of stop there as you're going somewhere else. Uh, there were some locals there that worked really hard. Of the seven cities in Revelation, Thyatira is the smallest during this time of the writing that they received. It's the smallest of all the cities, and it's seemingly least important. There's no architectural marvels. There's nothing for me to have great pictures to show you, even of their ruins. It was a small uh, trade city, and they had something there called trade guilds, G-U-I-L-D-S. You might be familiar with the word, but we don't use it very often today. A modern-day term would be something like a labor union, where workers got together, all who did the same trade, and they agreed together to live in the same area of town. They worked in the same shops. They all went to the same trade school. So you would go to certain aspects of the town. If you needed something done by a blacksmith, all the blacksmiths were there in town at the same section. Then you'd go over to some other part of town and you'd find everything else you needed for whatever other item. And so in Thyatira, they had these things called trade guilds. So bronze workers were there. And this is an important thing for you to consider. I've said this every week so far, and I believe this is true for every one of the messages in the seven churches. Jesus says a specific thing that they will understand. He says something very personal to them that helps them understand where he's coming from and who he is. So these people who were part of these guilds would also worship at the same shrine or the temple. In fact, life revolved around whether you were in whatever trade you were and not really intermingling with the others, but you kind of stayed in your lane and everybody went to the same temple to worship the same God and that sort of thing. Verse 18 says this, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. It was known, the city was known for its bronze weapons, for the weapons that they built. But notice something else here. It says this, and this is really interesting to me, this is the only location in the entire book of Revelation that Jesus refers to himself or is referred right here as the son of God. 
You say, well, why is that important? In other places, we know him to be the son of God, but we also hear him, even while he's on the earth in ministry, calling himself the son of man. He wants to identify with humanity. He wants people to understand he is one of us. But in this moment, he comes from a place of authority and says, I am the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. They would have understood what that meant in that, in that context. So, first he gives some good news. Verse 19, I love it. He says, I know your works, your love, your faith, and your service, and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This is good stuff. It really is. Forget that you heard the other verses for just a minute where he talks about, I'm going to throw you in the hospital and I'm going to kill your children. This is good news right here. I know your works. I know what you've been doing. And I can say, we've said this through every week of our message series um, so far, that we are looking not just at the word of God to that individual group of people almost 2,000 years ago, but we're truly trying to obey God's word in the last line in verse 29 when it says that he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. I believe God wants to speak to our church. And I believe I could point to our love, to our faith, to our service, to our patient endurance. Where's Ann and Sam Peden? They've been around for a while with us here in this church. They were here years before I got here. Their patient endurance. And it says, and that you, you've been better at this than you started out. You've, you've become greater in these things. So you'd, you'd want to visit this church if you got a letter like this and saw that because there's a lot to like there. But remember, Thyatira was a small city and this was a small church. Historians say, and those who study the word of God say that based on some different points of facts that they can find, that the church probably was no larger than 150 people. Does that look like something we're in today? Right? So it's a smaller church. It's interesting to me that the smallest church in the smallest city gets the longest letter from Jesus. So I I don't want to superimpose my thoughts on the word of God, but I want you to just consider the the point that really drove home to me in the studying of this message is that all churches matter regardless of their size. All Christian, Bible-believing, God-honoring churches matter to Jesus, even the smaller ones. Jesus doesn't favor megachurches over smaller churches. And we should never really mistake size for strength. Amen? According to the Barna Research Group, here in America, I want you to see this stat. Almost half, that's 46% of all church attenders attend a church that has 100 or fewer members. And more than one-third, 37%, attend a mid-sized church that's no larger than 499. That's the majority of America. And I believe, by and large, the work of God is done around the world through small Bible studies in villages with people that are, you know, 20 of them that are learning the Word of God and then applying it to their life. So I think it's really important that we understand that our church matters to Jesus even today. Amen? So in in many ways, Thyatira is one of the most effective of the four churches we've seen, which is really what makes the correction that he offers to them so painful to hear. 
Verse 20 says this, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. Somehow in the middle of this ministry impact of all the love and all the faith and their generosity, their patient endurance, in some way they've, in, they've allowed a woman who calls herself a prophetess to exercise enormous influence. I want to be clear today. If you've ever heard the word Jezebel, the name Jezebel, raise your hand. Okay? Keep your hand up if all you heard was bad things. Okay, right? Okay. Uh, no one ever was like, oh, she's so cute. Let's name her Jezebel after this because in the Old Testament, we've heard the story before, right? I seriously doubt. I tried to Google it, but you know, it's hard to find some details on naming. But I tried to see if there's anyone in the world currently named Jezebel. I don't think there are, okay? Because it's pretty much sworn off. It's got a really bad rap based on the woman it's referring to in the Old Testament. So most likely here in the New Testament, in Jesus' day and time, in John's time, Jesus is speaking, and most likely Jezebel is a symbolic name for a real person, a real woman in the church calling herself a prophetess, but acting like the Old Testament woman we know and have heard about named Jezebel. In 2 Kings, you can read the story about who Jezebel was. Essentially, and you should know this, uh, you should make sure that you know this, I should say. I'm not going to criticize you if you don't know this. But she was the princess of a foreign king that married an Israelite king. It was a political alliance. It was one of those things like, hey, I'll give you my daughter. She can marry you and we'll have peace between our nations and that sort of stuff. So she came from a foreign place. She was not an Israelite. She was not a Hebrew. She was the princess of a foreign king. So she had political power. She had financial ability and she had spiritual influence. Jezebel outlawed worship of God. In the Old Testament, this is who Jezebel is. And if you want to read more about her, read the book of 2 Kings. It talks about her and her husband. His name was Ahab. Essentially, she said, you should kill the prophets of God. The prophets and the priests of God, they should be killed. And she brought the worship of her God from her homeland into Israel. The God of her homeland would have been Baal. You've heard that name before if you read through the Old Testament, B-A-A-L. And it was the God from her homeland. So she convinced her husband, Israel's king, listen to me, all throughout their time as Israelites, God has been telling them, I am the Lord alone. You serve me and no one else. There was a problem that started way back in Abraham's day. And Abraham's descendants, they all came from those who we call polytheists. They had God for money and a God for this. They prayed for help from this one. And they had all these other things. When God comes to Abraham, he says, I am the one and only. And then he starts and says, I'm going to build a people out of you that are going to serve me, the one and only. If you just thumb through any part 
of the Bible in the Old Testament and get to one of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Nehemiah, any of those, you'll find that there was a struggle that stayed consistently with people who were supposed to be worshiping the one true God, but continued to allow themselves to be drawn back to other gods. That's why God says, don't intermarry with the people from those other places. They worship other gods. God was never concerned about race. That's not a deal breaker for him. He says, marry who you want to, who loves me. Amen. So we've got to understand this because Jezebel plays a huge part in the Old Testament in that time, but she also now is being named in Revelation. Baal was associated with another deity, a fake false god in the Old Testament, and his name was Molech. You can look at images of what they look what they imagine he looked like. They've seen some sculptures and things like that. Essentially, it's a man sitting on a throne with the head of a beast, kind of looks like a bull's head on the body of a man. And he's got his hands outstretched. And there was always a fire lit underneath the hands of the image that they worshiped. And they would come and women would take their babies and sacrifice them on the altar. It's mind-blowing. And you think, how in the world could they do that? How in the world can we in America, 2,000 years later, be doing the same exact thing? We're worshiping the God of selfishness rather than the God who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I say that to say this. Here's a caveat that I probably should mention at the front end. If you or someone you know has ever gone through an abortion, I believe with all of my heart that there is healing, that there's forgiveness, that there's grace. We do not lay guilt on anyone for those issues of the past. But what we do say is God believes that every life is valuable. Amen? And so if we are to be people of the word, we've got to look at it from front to back and understand that he always values life. So this was part of their worship back in the Old Testament. So let that sink in for just a second. This is demented stuff, demonic idolatry, uh, idolatry where they would worship this thing. And here we think some Christians complain about giving 10% of their income. We're not asking for your kids. I'm just kidding. If you're looking for a giving envelope, it's in the seat. Okay, so there's a, there's a placeholder. This is a placeholder. She is for an evil influence. Remember how I told you that the trade guilds were important? In Thyatira, every one of these guilds had a Greek god or goddess that was associated with it. Being part of that guild meant that you hung out with the boys or the women as it was, and you, whatever your trade was, when y'all got together for meetings, there was feasting and there was also something else, fornication. Now, this is going to get really dark and weird for just a minute, but stay with me. They would go to these parties, and this it was basically like a labor union and a frat house together. Okay, They would go here to these places, and though they would turn into full-blown debauchery. They would celebrate. They would offer uh, meat of different animals given to the idol. Then whatever was cooked, they would bring. They would celebrate by eating that meat that had been offered to the false god. And then everybody at the party essentially, to use today's modern term, would hook up with one another. 
They would swap partners at the party. It didn't matter if it was hetero, homo, lesbian. It didn't matter if it was multiple. They had this sick, twisted understanding that they thought that this was something that pleased their God. Now, you can look into some of the Old Testament and see some of the ways that that happened based on their thinking that they were going to please God. But this creates a crisis for those who are Christians. So in Thyatira, if I'm a Christian, I've just come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now I'm, I've been part of the blacksmiths or part of the bronze workers or whatever it is, guild. And now I think, okay, well, I've heard that God holds me to a different standard. You know what? I feel like I'm not supposed to be part of these things anymore. Well, then all of a sudden you got socially outed. You were the outcast from the group. So they faced this cultural pressure, which is really important for you to understand. As followers of Jesus, then and still today, we should be committed to sexual purity. Now, you might think that, oh, this doesn't really apply to me. I'm telling you it does. Whether you know someone who it might involve or whether it's you yourself, there is forgiveness and there's grace and there's healing, but there's also this moment to borrow Bob Newhart. Anybody know Bob Newhart? The older folks do, okay? To borrow his line of psychology and counseling. Stop it! That's what he does. Somebody complains and says, I'm, I'm having all these problems and these issues and I just don't know what to do. And he says, I've got two words for you. Stop! Stop it! And that's what we must do as believers here and now. We have to understand that the entirety of God's word backs up sexual purity, which would mean sex within the covenant of marriage only, which Christ himself affirmed. See, as moderns, we've complicated sex. We actually think we've made it easy so that, you know, you think Bill Clinton in those days and the Oval and that sort of, oh, it's no big deal. Well, no, it is a big deal. God says it's a big deal. In fact, Jesus has a very simple sexual ethic. In Matthew chapter 19, we'll have the verses on the screen for you. Verse 4, he's answering a question. And in verse 4, he says this, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Verse 5 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So God's word is clear. In fact, he actually says, and just because we're talking about this and it's in the same line of thinking, in the Old Testament, he accuses the nation of Israel of being a whore. He says, you are running around finding any partner you can, talking about deities, but all I've wanted you to do is be with me. Jesus backs up what has been known from the beginning. And let me just tell you, especially for the teenagers in the room, God is not a prude when it comes to sex. He invented it. God invented sex. This is, it's, he's a great God. For pleasure and for procreation, I'll just keep going, stop laughing. Married, heterosexual sex is God's greatest gift to his people. But sexual interaction of any kind with anyone who's not your wife or your husband 
according to the word of God, that is sin. You say, pastor, this is my first day here. I don't know. This is kind of deep. Yeah, but here's the thing. In our church, we always give the truth of God's word and we just leave it be. Whatever the Holy Spirit says to you, we want to see transformation and life change. If the Christians in Thyatira refused to take part of this feasting and fornication, they would suffer financially and be social outcasts. So this Jezebel comes on the scene We'll call her Jezebel. She comes on the scene and she introduces this new thought to the church. It's not really new because it's kind of old. But this new teaching. Oh, that doesn't... No, God wants you to be happy. You can, you can go to that church, just don't miss Friday night's party. She is actually giving that sort of take on theology. And Jesus says, basically, this woman is a troublemaker who is leading you the wrong way. She, she exercised influence over the church. And she was saying, oh, you can have faith in Christ and fornicate with others. You can have both. That's right. Well, that's convenient. Mm-hmm. Right? So apparently she entered the church... And she became a leader there. And she, I can imagine her saying something like this. Why are you guys so uptight? God, that's such an old fuddy-duddy sort of way to think about things. That's so old-fashioned. I am spiritually progressive. I have, I have found the truth. I'm telling you, it doesn't really bother him. You can do what you want. The church and the guild are not mutually exclusive. You can do both and. God wants you to be happy. I haven't found that in the word of God. God wants you to have joy. But the pleasures of this world and the things that our heart is naturally drawn to without redemption. And even after redemption. It's sick. Our heart is despicably sick. There's a similar message being preached in more places than you think. You can be a faithful Christian and do what you want. Have an open marriage. You can practice homosexuality. You can be a couple and live together with all the benefits of marriage. And none of the commitment or in the covenant of God. You can do whatever you want. You can have both. God is love. We shouldn't judge. We should be understanding and tolerant. Say, Pastor, you're hitting it hard this morning. Jesus has a lot to say about this because he says, I have this thing against you. You've tolerated this woman. So apparently the Christians were more tolerant than Christ himself. I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. Apparently, they tolerated more things than Christ would. And we as true believers hold, hold to a high view of Scripture. We believe, we actually have the audacity to believe that the Word of God in paper or in digital form that you hold in your hands today is actually the Word of God. And so when we, when we look at this, we have to say, I want you to change me because of your word, not I want to change your word to fit my life. And that is such a challenge. It's a challenge for any of us who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So the question then that a lot of people in our culture are asking, is Christianity a tolerant faith? In fact, you've seen the, the people lambasting the vice president's wife uh, just for working at a Christian school. How dare she? 
I'm trying to keep you awake this morning. How dare she? See, in today's culture, tolerance is celebrated as a number one virtue on top of the pile of everything else. More and more in America, if you don't hold to an open, tolerant view where you agree with, support, affirm, embrace everyone and everything, then you are primitive, you're prejudiced, you're discriminative, you're bigot, you're a bigot, you, you, you don't belong here. And it's funny to hear those who we know of and we've heard about in our culture today who then accuse people like Christians of being bigots and they say you should be tolerant but in their effort to make you tolerant, they are intolerant of your view. You have to watch out because it says that the devil has schemes, that he has ways of going about it to trick the people of God. And so we've got to know that in our today culture, in our culture today, that we have got to understand God's word is very clear. This simple sexual ethic that Jesus had, and I'm not trying to get political, I'm just calling it like it is. It involves the question of obedience. I really believe that if Jesus was alive speaking in America today, he'd be killed all over again. I really do. The bottom line is, it's a sin for Christians to be more tolerant than their Savior. Now, I didn't write this letter. (laughs) I'm just reading it for you. But let's not change the Word of God to fit our life. Let's let the Word of God change us. Amen? Amen? Amen. So we live in a world that values happiness more than holiness. Let me stop for just one second and let me say this. If you are expecting unbelievers, people that don't believe in Jesus, to follow your ways as a believer, you're headed down the wrong path, a path that's going to be full of struggle. You have to understand that the world is going to act like the world, but Jesus says the church better act like my church. It's my body, and he even gives a feminine reference to us as the church and says it's my bride. I am the groom, and one day I'm coming, and when I come to marry her, when we are reunited and brought together with all of the same of old and those who exist right now, when that happens, she better be pure and ready for me. As Christ followers and imitators, we are to value holiness over our own happiness. Don't cop out. Well, you know, he knows I can't be holy like he is, so I'm just going to give in and do whatever I want. No, you shouldn't. You should attempt in all of your strength and with all of his grace to live the way that he calls you to. So we believe that the Bible is God's word and that our Heavenly Father isn't just trying to ruin our fun. He's actually trying to protect us from pain, from hardship. We talk about it being like the parent who says, kid, don't play in the street. It's not because the street is super fun and, you know, you're going to have so much fun that they just, they feel like making you, robbing you of your joy. It's because they are worried that you're going to get hit. God himself does this. So each of us have to weigh his words against our lives and behaviors. And you say, wow, this is pretty heavy talking about sexual idolatry and all of this other stuff. But listen to me, church. It has to do with your problem with anger. It has to do with your view on money. It has to do with your peace in your life. It has to do with every aspect of your life. Whether we will obey and submit to God's word and let his word change us or whether we will buck against it and hope 
that we make it through. So a good question to ask yourself is this. Am I more conformed to the culture around me or to Christ? That might be easier to answer for some of us than others, but all of us could use some shoring up, some help in this area. This may offend people, but I have to tell you, the people who are part of our church at least, and those who are guests today, I want you to hear me. My goal is, I hope not to offend people, but I'm more concerned with not offending Jesus Christ. That's why we preach the word of God like we do, because we want to understand that Christ is more important than all the rest. So look at verse 21. It says this, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. Now, if you're with us for the first time and you say, what does that word repent mean? It means to turn and walk in the other direction. So essentially, God's been looking at his clock, his watch, and he's been saying, okay, I've given her days, months, maybe a year, maybe years and I've said this it's time for you to give up that struggle and to start seeking me but she refuses to repent of her her sexual immorality verse 22 behold I'll throw her onto a sick bed we would say a deathbed or a hospital bed and those who commit adultery with her I'll throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works It's so interesting to me. There's no other place in scripture that I found that says something like this. It always says you need to repent of your works. But he is so hard and fast on this woman who has falsely preached in the church, shared this influence in the church, and said, sure, you can do whatever you want. And here he says, you have better change right now. You better stop doing what she's taught you to do. He lays all the onus on her. Verse 23, this is God, Jesus Christ, the judge. He says, I will strike her children dead. You say, oh, well, that's the part. Yep, everybody in the world talks about the God with the big hammer waiting to kill everybody. Listen, he's doing it for a reason. He's been telling them literally for 2,000 plus years at this point, stop serving all those other things and serve me alone. And I'm here to tell you, listen to me, church. I'm here to tell you the words of Jesus by the Spirit of God to you today is stop doing the things that displease him even today. And repent of those things, whatever they are. So when Jesus returns, he is coming back as a judge. I don't know if you realize that or not. That's why the Bible tells us over and over to repent because there's going to be a judgment unless they repent of her ways. And here's what I want to tell you is that repentance is a gift. John 3.17 says this. You've got to understand, repentance is an offer from Jesus. We always quote John 3.16, and we could probably all say it out loud. But verse 17 says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We cannot change God or his standards. We've got to allow him to change us. So here's the question to consider today. For each one of you, no matter what you've experienced in your life, no matter what religious references you have in your past, no matter the sins that you've committed in your past, the question here today by the Spirit of God is who is calling the shots in your life? Are you submitting 
to his word and to his work in you, or are you the one who's calling the shots? So instead of acting proud and progressive, as a lover of God, we need to be humble and obedient and be open to the idea that maybe the way I think about this issue, whatever this issue is, is wrong. Maybe the way that I'm living is wrong. Maybe the thing that I'm doing doesn't please Christ. Instead of just writing it off and saying, yeah, sure, no, I think I'm good. If God says it, we must obey it. Look at verse 24. It says, but to the rest of you. So he swings from the compliment to the, ooh, this is bad news, to the verse 24, he comes back up. But to the rest of you who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. So what's Jesus' advice to the Christians who are living in a culture of compromise? These two words. He says, hold fast, hold on. Look at the reward that they'll receive in verse 26. In verse 26, it says this, The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. I want you to stop there for a second and think about this. Jesus is not saying, and I know that you can do this online, I don't know, it might be a good Valentine's idea for somebody. You can actually like name a star, you pay like $20 or $50 and like name a star, an actual star after that person and give them a little certificate. It's been around for, you know, a couple years or whatever. Jesus is not saying, I'm going to give each of you your own celestial body that you can just float around on. He's actually saying something so much deeper than that. In fact, the morning star is a reference you see later in Revelation 22 where he himself is called the morning star. So this is the reward that's coming. He says, I'll give you myself, my kingdom. And verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. I understand this to be plural, even in the original language, but every letter is written written individually to a church. But now on this train, on this, um, not train, but on this road of delivering these letters, each one of these churches needed to hear the correction and the encouragement from the other churches as well. So he's otherwise, he's saying this, if the shoe fits, put it on. If you hear this message today, you are responsible for that. So I find it interesting that Jesus, when he corrects these churches, it's always about compromise of some sort. And compromise still exists today, even in our church, even in my life, in small ways in each one of us, maybe in larger ways. But the real thought that I had was this, will we follow Jezebel or will we follow Jesus? God's truth does not hurt or harm, it heals. It may sting a little bit, but it heals. I want you to stand with me today. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
And my thought today, as I close the message, I, I want to offer to you that, that choice. You can have Jezebel or you can have Jesus, but you cannot have both. Now this message, you say, you know, I'm happily married, uh, this and that. We, there's no sexual immorality. This message doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. It applies to us as teenagers, as college students, because it's more than that. It's about compromise in any area of our life, whether we're not spending time with God like we ought to. Feel him calling you back today with the loving voice of a father saying, would you spend some time with me? Hear him calling you today to maybe set aside something that Paul the Apostle calls the sin that so easily besets you or knocks you off course. You know what your struggle is. The Holy Spirit knows what your struggle is. He wants to help you. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's alcohol addiction. Maybe it's pornography. I'm not sure, but I am confident of this, that in this very moment, in this very room, 2,000 years after this letter was written, that Jesus Christ, the one who is the greatest judge of all, is here with love saying, would you turn back and come to me? Close your eyes and bow your heads. If you're with us today for the very first time and you say, Pastor, wow, what a message. I like what I heard about Jesus, but I don't have a relationship with him. I'm interested to know more. Would you just slip up your hand? We'll make it easy for you to do today. We're not going to call you to the front, hand you a microphone, anything crazy. We just want to know if there's anybody here that says, I haven't had a relationship with him and I need one. Slip up your hand right now. Anyone here? no hands being raised. If you are here today and you say, I'm a believer. I gave my heart to the Lord. I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer when I was 10, 12, whatever age it was. But you know what? My life is full of compromise. No one looking around. Lift up your hand and say, today I'm admitting that in God's presence. I need his help. In some area of my life, I have compromise. Right right now, there are hands going up. Don't look around. Keep your, your, your space private right now. Father, as these hands are lifted to you, we cry out to you, Father. You're the God of all the earth. You're the one who created us and sustains us. Your grace is sufficient for us. And today, we as your people, the church of God... We are getting the sin out of our lives and out of our own hearts. And we're saying, God, help us in these areas of compromise, whatever they may be. So, Lord, I pray that you would receive us back into your loving embrace today. That we would receive the encouragement that you have for us. And that, Lord, we would hold on to the truth. You may put your hands down. And the worship team's going to sing this song really quickly. And it's just a moment for you to connect with God. If you need prayer for any reason, uh, we have our prayer stations open. Miss Ann is going to be at that prayer station over there. I'll be at this prayer station. If you need healing in your body, if you want prayed for based on the message today, if you've got an issue with a family member, whatever it is, we want to pray for you today. So step out of your seats while we sing. Caught up in this hole 